I don't know how to tell you this, uh, but just to tell you my heart, and then I'm going to preach a little bit uh, from Philippians chapter 1. It has taken, you know, it takes a long time to grow up, I think, and to mature and to understand things. In 1977, I started a church at the age of 23, and I stayed there for eight years. I felt like God had called me to be a missionary when I was 11 years old, and I was a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. When I became an independent Baptist, I thought, well, you know, I heard one of the most famous preachers in the day, and he said, if you can't cut it in America, go to the mission field. And so in my prideful youth, I said, well, I think I can cut it, so I must not be called to go to the mission field. Must not have cut it because he ended up sending me to the mission field. But anyway, uh, but anyway, so I started a church. I pastored there for eight years. And but every time a missionary came into our church, I would want to go to that mission field. And uh, long before the day, so a lot of people a little older here. Our church, I'm like the fourth or fifth oldest person in the church. And so at our church, whenever I say stuff, they have no idea. But there used to be a thing called Encyclopedia Britannica. You ever heard of those? Or world books, you know? And back in the 80s, as uh, the Lord was dealing with my heart, as the Lord was dealing with my heart, every time a missionary came, I'd go home and I'd look up that country in the world book. That was Google, you know? And I'd look that country up and I'd read all about it. And I'd think, well, Lord, I'd like to go there. And uh, so Betty got where she hated missionaries. I mean, every one of them come was upsetting her nest. And my wife is one of those people that likes to be in the same spot all the time. That's where she wants her life to be. And so every, time, every month, I was going to go to India this month and China next month and Peru the next month and Brazil the next month and Australia the next month and Alaska the next month. And, and uh, my wife said, you know, they can't preach and uh, they, they dress funny. And, and uh, so a missionary showed up to, to Spain, a good guy. We, he's my friend. We supported him. He showed up in a, uh, a uh, school bus. He had changed into a motorhome. So my wife pulled up the church, and he, as she pulled up, he was cranking out the chimney, and it came out the top of the bus, and he lit a, a wood fire in there. <laughs> My wife came and said, don't you ever ask me to be a missionary. We are not doing that kind of thing. I'm from Tennessee Hillbilly, you know, and so she's a rich little Atlanta girl. So I was like, I don't mind. That's pretty neat. Camper in a, in a bus, pretty good deal. Wood stove, saving money. And my wife, she's a highfalutin Atlanta girl. She said, we ain't never doing that. So anyway, over the years, the Lord began to deal with my heart. And I went to her and I said, Betty, I now know God wants us to be a missionary. And she said, well, I'll just tell you now, I am not going where it's hot. So I started in the A's. I found Alaska. So I went to her and I said, hey, it's not hot in Alaska. She's like, I ain't going where it's cold neither. I said, you're not going where it's hot. You're not going where it's cold. So I said, I'll find some lukewarm places. Right in the middle, buddy. So I found, uh, I knew I wanted to learn how to speak Spanish. because I was too dumb to, to speak more than one language. And so... Uh, from Tennessee hillbilly to English and then to Spanish was going to be a stretch. And I was told in high school I couldn't speak. And I was told in college when I took courses uh, in language, they said, look, buddy, you have no language ability. And then when I got to language school, I hadn't been there about five or six weeks. And the teacher looked out and she said, Austin, you have no language ability. 
I said, ma'am, I already knew that before I got here. But anyway, so I figured out I want to go to Spanish, so I picked out Mexico City, Guatemala, and Arequipa. Couldn't say the word. And so I didn't want to go to Mexico too close. If you're going to be a missionary, just go all the way, amen? So I just wiped that one off the list. And then I called the mission board, and I said, I want to go to Guatemala. And they said, there's civil war going on. I said, I'll wipe that one off. I ain't telling anybody that. And so I, I felt like the Lord led us to Arequipa. And uh, I went there. I was so excited to get to try to learn a language and try to speak to people and see things happen. And then the Lord began to really burden my heart with an entire world. And we started a Bible college and started training young Peruvians. And then, and then God started sending Americans to us. And the reason I came home was we were training more Americans to be missionaries all around the world. And, the, and my time was taken up with that. And Peruvians were doing a great job in the, in the Bible college. And they're still doing a good job. I want you to know, somewhere along the way, you got to wake up and realize there's a world out there, an entire world. And maybe you, you, you probably know all of this, but only one out of every three people in the entire world even claim to be Christian. Now, you need to hear that. See, the Americas, we're all Christians. You know, Georgia's a Christian place. I live in Georgia. Everybody in Georgia is saved, except the Hindus that just moved in. The rest of them are saved. I know that because I pastored there for eight years. I was out knocking on doors one day, and I started Liberty Baptist Church, 315 Grassdale Road. And I'm out knocking on doors. I got this old man with me, about my age now. And I'm 23, and he's like 65. I thought he was old as dirt. Now I think it ain't that old. Say man. But anyway, we're out knocking on doors. I knock on this lady's door, and Brother Shelton's with me. And I said to her, man, I'd like to know if you died today, if you go to heaven. She said, I sure would. I said, well, that's great. I said, tell me how you got saved. She kind of gave me some story. It wasn't much. And I said, well, can you tell me? Did you go to church? She, where? she said, I do. I said, well, what church you go to? She said, I go to Liberty Baptist. I'm the pastor. I'm the very first member. I've been there. I know everybody. I mean, I've led almost all of them to Christ. And I said, Really? There's only 150 people going, and I know everybody. And I said, really? She said, yeah. I said, what church is it? I said, she said, that one up on Grassdale Road. I said, well, fantastic. My name's Austin Gardner. I'm pastor of Liberty Baptist Church on Grassdale Road. She said, I went there for you, did. <laughs> there wasn't a church for me. Amen. She said, I was there under that other pastor. So everybody's saved, but did you know what? One out of three is all that really saved? Have you ever thought that... Uh, over here, in, over here in China, there's over a billion, 400 million people, and most of them have never heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Don't you let anybody talk you into believing that there are so many Christians in China. They'll say stuff like, there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States. There's more of everything in China than there are in the United States. Their country is four times as big as ours. They eat four times as much rice as we do. Huh? They eat four times as much of everything. It's a big country. Have you ever thought about what we're going to do to get the gospel? You're having missions to determine what's going to happen. How about this little country of India? 1.4 billion, very likely already passing China in population. China just now went from the one-child policy to the three-child policy. It's like we better start having babies or our country's dying. India, they don't mind having babies. And they're growing like crazy. No gospel, almost no gospel. 300 million false gods. 300 million false gods. Who will take the gospel message to all of these places around the world 
that need to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. About a third of the world has no real access to the gospel. About a third of the world has no real access to the gospel. We need to get the gospel message to the world. We need to pray about all those Arabs in northern Africa that need to hear the gospel message. We need to pray about all of the dark continent, Africa. It's not dark because of the skin color. It's dark because there's no light, no gospel. So you're here today in a church that's really giving to missions. You're already a very strong church. You're doing a great work. God's using you greatly, but it's missions emphasis. Now, I don't know of anything more important than the souls of men and women. Now, I don't know, you know, I've only got two services and I got about a month's worth of preaching for you. But I would just tell you that if you read the Bible, the God uses a local church. And that's God's form. It's God, God wants us starting churches and training people how to do the work in churches and in churches sending out missionaries and reaching souls. And if you can start churches, you can make a massive difference in, in the world. And so every church needs to feel the responsibility. Every person ought to be praying. You ought to pray. Do you know you were commanded to pray that the Lord would send forth labors into his harvest? You're told to do that. Say amen. Let's pray about that. Let's ask God to send laborers into his harvest. I would pray that you would do that. I want to read with you just one verse, and then I will tell you a story, and then we'll go through this entire passage of Scripture if we can. I want you to read with me uh, Philippians chapter 1, and we'll read just verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We don't really believe that. I mean, we know it's in the Bible, and we believe it intellectually. We don't believe it in our hearts. Very few of us are like, man, I'd like to go on to heaven. If the Lord's getting up a load this afternoon. We'd be like, look, I, just, I didn't want to go that quick. <laughs> How about a year or two from now? How about five years from now? 360 days ago, I came off the ventilator. I had uh, COVID. Some of you may have prayed for me, and if you did, I really appreciate that. I, of course, I didn't know you did uh, because my wife knew it and my kids knew it, but I had no idea what was going on at all. Uh, on May the 20th, I went to the hospital. About May the 14th or 15th, I came home. I teach on Friday. I teach about 50 to 75 young missionaries and students that were preparing to be missionaries. And uh, I teach every Friday that I'm in town, and I preach, teach for four solid hours. And so I'm, that's my most exciting time of my week. It's the most important part of my week. It's more important, really, than, than uh, preaching at our church for me because it's getting missionaries to the field. It came Thursday night. I preached at our church. We have midweek on Thursday night. I preached Thursday night. I got through preaching, and I went home, and I just told Betty, I said, I do not know what's wrong, but I am not going to church tomorrow. I'm not going to teach tomorrow. And I sent out a text to the staff, and I said to them, uh, I said, look, I don't know what's going on. Y'all do whatever you want to do with the church. I don't feel good. I'm not coming tomorrow. And they all thought I was teasing because I never miss. Uh, I had kidney cancer, and I was out for two weeks to three weeks. I took a kidney and everything. They said I was going to be out for six months. I was out for two weeks. So they're like, he's just telling one. That night I came home from church, and that... I typed that message, and that's the last thing I remember for a month. My wife said I walked around the house. 
uh, groaning and moaning and uh, uh, my head was hurting and I had fever and I was in a hunting jacket and uh, laying in the bed with all the cover they could pile on top of me and I was freezing to death and my family started breaking apart because they're all fighting. Of course, I don't know any of this is going on. I hear about all of it when I get out. But their family's having this massive fight because of my son in Peru is talking to his sister who lives, at, lives in our house in our basement. There's a full apartment. She lives down there, and he's fussing with her, and he's saying, you got to get Dad to the hospital. Well, I'm a Tennessee hillbilly. I don't go to the hospital. Bless God, I don't go to the hospital, and nobody tells me what to do. Amen. You know, especially women and my children are not supposed to tell me what to do. And so she said, I've told him to go to the hospital. Well, I don't remember any of this because I'm such a nice and docile guy. I would have done what I was asked if I'd have known what was going on. Amen. And so I walked around the house and finally my son called up. He told my daughter, he said, you're killing him. Get him in the hospital today. And, and so he, she said, he won't listen. And so then they called my other son and my other son said, I'm calling 911. Just get him ready. My wife came in there and she said, we're taking you to the hospital. I said, no, you're not. She said, you're going to the hospital. I said, well, I'm going to take a shower first. I don't know anything about this stuff. She told me. And so I went and tried to take a shower. I couldn't hardly get my hands up. I couldn't hardly walk. couldn't breathe. My oxygen was in the 70s. And that means that your brain is totally not working. You can stay alive, but you don't know what you're doing. So I took a shower. The ambulance pulled up. I've seen the pictures. I went outside with them, and the ambulance driver come up. My family says that they said, who's the patient? And everybody pointed at me. And I looked at God. I said, I'm not getting in your ambulance. And he, he said, come on. I said, I said, I'm not getting on that gurney. And I just went in and got on the gurney anyway. <laughs> you know, I was in it and out of it. I didn't know what was going on. I went to the hospital, and the doctor told me. He said, you're going to need to go on a ventilator. I don't know you this. My wife told it all to me. And I said to him, I said, uh, now, wait a minute. I know where I'm going, but I think we ought to at least call my wife about this. And he said, all right. So my wife says I called her and told her, and they put me on a ventilator. So for 21 days, I was drugged in a, in a medically induced coma. I was turned and not bathed, not cleansed. I got a scar on my face where they had the tubes hooked up to me. That's just where they stuck them on there, and it rotted a hole almost all the way through my face. They didn't care because they knew the undertaker would fix it. I was in palliative care, which means we'll be nice to him until he dies. And uh, I'm on a ventilator. While I'm on a ventilator, I have vivid dreams. I mean, I don't know I'm on a ventilator. I just am dreaming like crazy. And I could hear my wife. My wife is the sweetest lady on the planet. And everybody loves my wife. People put up with me, and they love Betty. The patients know that's true. Everybody knows that's true that knows me. So I'm laying in the bed, and I can hear Betty out in the hallway at the hospital all day long and all night saying, well, hello, how are you? Welcome to the hospital. How can I help you? And she's hugging everybody like she does at our church, and she's being nice to everybody. And so I would call out, and I'd say, Betty, Betty, I've given you 50 years. Could I have five minutes? And she wouldn't come, and I'd just lay in the bed and cry. Of course, she wasn't there, and no, that's true, but I thought it was. And uh, I had dreams I can't even tell you about. I mean, famous preachers came to see me. <laughs> famous preachers that aren't even in my line of work, but they came to see me and told me, buddy, well, we got all kind of money, and you know how to do missions, and we're going to give you all that. I came to it, and I told me, I said, do you believe he came to see me? And she said, he didn't come see you. I said, yes, he did. <laughs> he was there. He said, he's going to give us all the money we need. We're going to build churches everywhere. She said, honey, he did not talk to you. I said, he flew me in his private plane. <laughs> Three weeks later, 
I woke up. They pulled the tube. They told my wife, we're going to put a, we're going to put a trach in him and see what happens. And they woke me up. And uh, I do remember when waking up and I thought to myself, who's got me? And what are they doing to me? They were all dressed in stuff that came down to here and came up to, up to here and they had three pairs of gloves on and when they'd walk in the room, they'd stop at the door and they'd put on more protective gear because COVID was pretty new. And this is a May and, or early June of last year and they'd walk in the room and they'd talk to me and then they'd leave and they'd take all their stuff off and throw it in the garbage can and they'd walk out of the room. And uh, I was like, these are Chinese communists. <laughs> and they have captured me on the mission field. And they are persecuting me. And so I called some of my fellows and I said, you've got to get me out of here. And I called one guy in Taiwan. He's the first missionary out of our church. And I said, you need to come get me. And he said, I don't know what he said, but he said, he told me later, he said, I was like, what are you doing calling me? I called Betty. She wouldn't get me out. So I called one of the guys who's always really nice to me. And I said, look, I will, I, I'm not wearing underwear. I just got that robe on and I'm a big guy and it don't meet back there. And, and, uh, I told him I was, and I got on yellow socks with little knots all over them. And I told my, I told my buddy, I said, I'll meet you at 400, about three miles away. If you'll just come get me, we'll get out of here. And of course he's like, <laughs> I could have never, I, I got out of bed, fell down, busted my head, busted my knee, had to, had to be put through an MRI again, all kind of junk. They put a guy on me to watch me. His entire job was 24 seven, just sit there and watch me, him and other people, they took turns. I'd be laying in the bed. If I turn over, I'd say, what are you doing? Because he's afraid I was trying to run away again. And uh, I said, I need to go to the bathroom. And he said, uh, you got a catheter, just go. So I, anyway, I finally, I get to, I got to go sit down in the bathroom. And I said, can I, I really need to go to the bathroom. And they take the catheter out. So he gets me and he, says, let me help you. And he walked me over and he sets me in the bathroom and uh, he sits down about three feet away just sitting there. And I said, I don't think I can do this when you're sitting there. Could you shut the door? And see, so move the door about an inch. And I said, uh, anyway, it's terrible. So about four days or five days, I'm starting to come to it. I'm starting to realize what's going on. And I told the Lord, I don't want to live. He took a great missionary friend of mine at 68 years of age, Randy Sturwalt, who had started over 300 churches in Africa, went to heaven. They have 40,000, 50,000 in church on every Sunday over there in his ministry. I've seen it with my own eyes. I know it to be true in Kenya. And I'm crying in the bed, and I'm saying, God, you took Randy. Take me. Let me go home. And I dreamed that I was on a, I've never played soccer in my life, but I dreamed I was on a soccer field. If you, if you live in South America long, soccer becomes such a thing. And I just dreamed that the coach was calling me off the field. No yellow card, no red card. And he just said, good job, buddy. Well done. Come on over. I got somebody else can take your place. And I said, God, take me to heaven. And I woke up one morning and I'm tired. I'm tired of everybody picking on me, coming in and lifting my robe and stabbing me in the belly and, I never know what they're doing, and they just say, this is for this. And, you know, Fine, go ahead, stab me. And uh, so I woke up, and I told the lady when they brought my food, I said, I don't want that food. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to fast till I die. I'm going to heaven. A lady from our church who's a Filipino lady, she's been coming every day for almost a month. 
And she'd come in there, and her name's Faith, and she's the sweetest lady in the world. She comes in every day. She's trying to feed me. She came out there, and I said, Faith, I'm not eating. You can leave. Ugliest I'd ever been to her. She kind of teared up and turned to walk out. She said, you'll never get out if you don't do what they tell you to do. They'll never let you go. And uh, I was laying in the bed, and all of a sudden, this person is at the foot of my bed. They're all dressed in the same garb that everybody else is wearing. And I thought it was a girl. I have no idea what it was, but she said to me, what's wrong, Mr. Gardner? The sweetest voice outside of my wife said I could think of, and I said, I don't know. She said, I think you've lost hope. I said, oh, that, that's for sure. And she said, you know you're not doing right. This isn't how you're supposed to act. I'm like, first off, you ought not be talking to me like this. I didn't say it. I just thought it. And she turned to leave. And I couldn't find it. No one knew who she was. But I knew then the Lord was saying, you got to live, boy. And I said, bring me the food. I'll eat the stuff. Stinks. It's COVID. Stinks. Doesn't taste right. Nothing's good. And I ate the food. A couple of days later, I was back home. They said I'd be on dialysis because I only have one kidney and they said I wouldn't be out of the house for maybe forever, but for a year. Three weeks later, I was in the pulpit preaching again. All I've got left is really the throat mess in the neck. But it brings a question to my mind, and it's this passage of Scripture. Why am I alive? I lay there in that bed all those days, and I'd lay there, and I'd just say, oh, why? God, why am I alive? And I couldn't. I couldn't get my thoughts together. I couldn't see the television. Everything is moving. And uh, a lady from our church had come in. I thought it wasn't. And I saw three and there was one. And I told the head nurse, that girl goes to my church. She is not touching me. Because I wish she could see me again at church. I want some dignity left. And the lady goes out and comes back in. She says uh, to the person, she said, you ever seen him? She never seen him for in my life. She took good care of me. I laid there and I started preaching in Genesis 1-1 to myself. I just started and I preached the entire Bible. When I got out, they said that everybody came in the house, I preached an hour and a half. I still messed up. They said I'd preach an hour and a half. I'd start in Genesis 1-1 and re-preach that whole message. But I kept asking myself, why am I alive? And I ask you this morning, why are you alive? Now, I'm really kind of a freaky situation. I was in a church up in in our area, and I went in, the pastor said, that's Austin Gardner, he's supposed to be dead. <laughs> that's a real nice way to greet me, thank you very much. And uh, he said, I've had other friends that's younger than him, and they died. So I have a question, why am I alive? But you're alive too. So would you read with me the scripture, and let's go through it and think about why are we alive? Start with me in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I wish you'd underline, through your prayer. And what happens is, I know that God raised me up through the prayer of His people and the, His will to work in my life. But I told the guys at the church, you tell them it has nothing to do with prayer that's healed me, it's the God of heaven. And that's kind of weird, because this verse says it is prayer, but I was upset because my wife got a phone call from our doctor, who's a Hindu. And he called up and he said, hello, Betty. And Betty said, hey. And he said, how is Austin doing? 
And uh, Betty said, well, he's fine. She said, I'm sure glad we got the right medicine. He said, no, 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 no. It was not the medicine. It was the prayers. But he doesn't know God. He doesn't know Jesus. There are 300 million gods where he comes from. And I was just so upset that anybody would think that prayers got me out. Good thoughts didn't get me out. The God of heaven raised me up and let me come back. It's through the prayers and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. But I want you to read with me verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now I want you to go back to the verse. In verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, I fully expect and hope not to embarrass Jesus. I want to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, that might not be what it means. It says magnified. It does mean that. He was saying, I don't want to be embarrassed to talk about him, and I don't want to embarrass him by the way I live. If I'm alive, I want Jesus to be glorified and magnified in my life. If that's true, say amen. Now read the verse with me, if you would. And my, that nothing, I, I won't be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be embarrassed about who Jesus is. I don't want to be embarrassed about going to heaven. I don't want to be embarrassed about the God of heaven. But with all boldness, with all boldness, I want Christ to be magnified. I want Christ to be magnified in my body. Now look at this. Whether by life or by death. I don't know if that's really true. I mean, I know it's true because it's in the Bible. And I know it's true because God said it. I don't know if we think it's true. I think we might even say, I want God to be magnified in my body by life. But none of us are ready to say, God, just kill me if that's what it takes. I just want you magnified. But the apostle Paul said, boy, I just want to, I want Jesus magnified. And I don't care if I have to live or die. I just want Jesus magnified. Verse 21, he said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Ah, come on. You know, nobody called my wife up while I was dying. She had COVID. She had, I had pneumonia. I was septic. You name it. I had all of it. And my wife had pneumonia, double pneumonia, and Faith was going to our house and giving her uh, uh, IVs and all the medicines, and the people were taking care of her. I didn't know she was sick. But nobody called Betty up and said, hey, Betty, Austin's had a good life and to die's gain. So praise the Lord. All gain around here when he dies, going to be, nobody talks like that. Come on, tell the truth. Huh? To live is Christ. Well, that part's probably not true either. Probably to live is the boat or the airplane. Probably to live is the retirement and the house and the vacation. Probably to live is the family Probably to live is whatever makes me happiest. To live. Paul said, man, if I live, I only want to live for one reason. I want to live for Jesus. I don't want to be ashamed of him. I want to be bold in proclaiming him. I want Jesus magnified to live as Christ. He said, but if I could die, that'd be better. That'd be gain. If to live is Christ, have you ever considered that God gave you life? What are you doing to magnify Jesus? Have you ever considered if to live is Christ, God's given you money, how much of that money is being used to further the cause of Jesus Christ? 
How many times are you teaching in a Sunday school class? How many times are you out sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ? How many times are you praying? How many times are you saying, I'm alive and it's for Jesus? I'm laying in the bed and they come in here. I have 21 grandkids and I had to name all my grandkids. I want to make sure our brain was working. And I couldn't name four of them. I said, I just call them little, little ones. As four, but I didn't. I don't know them when I'm healthy. Amen. I mean, I know who they are, but I've got their names are confused on all them little kids. They want to know that. And this lady said, "You know, you need to prepare that you're probably not leaving home." She said, "What do you want to do when you get out of here?" I said, "I'm getting on the next airplane. I'm preaching somewhere else around the world. I want to preach about Jesus." And she said, "Sir, you're not ever going to do that stuff." I said, "I'd rather be dead." But here's the question. He let you live too. See, I kept asking him. I still ask him, why am I alive? You could have taken me. I was 65 years old, 70, and if by reason of strength, 80. Come on, tell the truth. I'm close enough. It's time to go home. But he left me here. Well, he didn't leave me here so I could enjoy this. He's not looking for in heaven saying, enjoy it down there, buddy. You're coming up here. It ain't that good. That ain't what he's saying. He had a purpose in letting me live. And he had a purpose in letting you live. Can I get an amen right there? Come on. What are you doing with the life he's given you? I'll give you it at verse 22. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Uh-oh. Now stop. If you're alive, what's the fruit of your labor? Right now, Paul said, if I stay alive, I know, you know, I know, everybody knows God's using me. The pastor just sang a song about it. Will I go empty-handed? What's the fruit of your labor? Where are the souls you're seeing saved? Where's the prayers you're getting answered? Where's the money you're giving to the cause of Christ? What's the fruit of you being alive? What's the fruit of you being, God, why didn't you just take me to heaven? When I came home, they hadn't bathed me for 30 days, which is actually against the law. My son David sat in the house, and I didn't know this either until weeks afterwards, but he'd keep his face covered, and they opened all the windows, and it took days to bathe off the... David said, sitting in the room, would you like smelling death? I didn't know it. I thought it smelled all right. I've been used to that. But let me live. Why? Let you live. Why? Now, the Apostle Paul is going to say something that's kind of funny King James talk. Listen to this. He says, yet what shall I choose? I what not. I like that. He's like, I ain't got no idea what I choose. Do I really want to stay here and keep having fruit for Jesus? Or do I want to go to heaven where, where I, I gain, I gain. It's going to be wonderful. Or do I want to stay here? But whatever it is, I want Jesus magnified. Amen. I want Jesus magnified. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 23, I'm in a strait betwixt two. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Come on now. Come on now. We pray more to keep saints out of heaven than sinners out of hell. 
Check out the prayer list. Aunt Susie's got bunions, Lord. You bless her now. You hear? We don't pray about Chinese people dying and going to hell, but they're waking up in hell right now. They're dropping off like crazy. Paul said, well, I want to leave and go to heaven. I'm not sure we do. Oh, God, I don't, I'd love to depart and be with you. That's far better. Hey, Betty, if Austin dies, it's far better. Nobody said that to her. Hundreds of people were calling him and telling him. Verse 25, and having this confidence, I know, excuse me, I skipped 24. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul lived a life that met needs. You know, in the Bible, you never see Christians going on strike because a preacher died. You know, we're a dime a dozen. Get rid of me, pick up another one. But our second, our first daughter, our second child, her name is Stephanie. And when we found out she was a girl, which she didn't find that out until they came out back in those days. Uh, that's modern stuff where you can know what they are two weeks into pregnancy, you know. Uh, uh, so I told Betty, I said, now look, I want to name her Dorcas. I said, Dorcas is like my hero in the Bible. You know, you remember Dorcas? When Dorcas, uh, when Dorcas died, they picked her body up and sat down on the kitchen table or whatever. They all stood around the room holding everything she'd done for them and talking about the blessing, how needful she was. And then they said, somebody go get Peter. He's got to bring this woman back. We need her. They ain't never done that for a preacher. Preacher's down there like, ah, right, we get another one. <laughs> they did it for her. So I told Betty, I said, let's name her Dorcas. Betty said, we ain't naming her Dorcas. I said, well, her other name's Tabitha. And back then, Bewitched was on, and that was a TV show about a witch. And I wasn't about to name my daughter Tabitha. It's also a kitty cat, so I wasn't going to name her that. And so we named her Stephanie, because Betty wears, runs the family. Amen. <laughs> and my daughter's extremely grateful. What are you doing that's needful? It's time to examine ourselves and say, you know, the Lord left me here and he gave me money and he gave me time and he gave me talents. He gave me this ability to do stuff. What am I doing that's needful for the cause of Christ? You see, I had to think to myself, I'm laying there in that hospital. I wanted to die. And if I hadn't have gotten whatever that vision was, if I hadn't have seen whatever happened, I wanted to die. I mean, I was hurting and I, I couldn't see my family and I hadn't seen anybody in a long time and I was all upset and I was feeling pity, self-pity. I was a big baby and I just wanted to die. And I felt like the Lord said, get up. Stop acting like a baby. So I said, why do you want me to live? Why do you want me to live? Why does he want you to live? You're not an accident. You're important. God loves you. He has a plan for you. Maybe you ought to come and say, you know, I haven't been using my talents. I haven't been using my money. I haven't been living what ought to live. Look, if you would, at verse 25. And having this confidence, I know I shall abide 
and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Just on the word furtherance, and I'm done. What are you doing that furthers the kingdom? What are you doing that furthers the cause? See, it's all the same thing. Whether by life or by death, I want Christ to be magnified. I don't want to be embarrassed about Jesus and who he is. I don't want to be embarrassed about this stuff. I really want to serve God with everything in me. So answer this question in your heart and mind. Why are you alive? Why did he choose to let you live? I, I wrestle with that every day. I woke up this morning, I said, God, the ladies at the hospital, they, you know, they taught me how to walk again. Taught me how to turn over in the bed first and then how to set up and then how to walk. Taught me how to go to the bathroom, how to use a walker. They told me you can go home and enjoy the rest of it, whatever's left. And I said, God, why'd you leave me alive? And I really believe that there's a purpose for my life. And I don't think you should think I'm anybody special. I believe there's a purpose for your life. And it's not to hold those pews down. It's not to sit here and be a spectator. We got to get in and get on with it and do something for Jesus that's worthwhile. Let's further others, further the, further the children in our church. What's going to happen if, if in 20 or 30 years and you die, who's taking your place? Who are you discipling? Who have you led to Christ? What are we doing till Jesus comes that furthers the cause? So I answer this question. Why am I, why am I, Allah, Father in heaven.